Hey there, you're listening to the Mad Village podcast of our interview with Dr. Aaron Hart, an ethnographer with a particular interest in young people. Unfortunately, due to our recording malfunction, we lost quite a few minutes of this wonderful interview, including a, an awesome track by Flight Facilities called Stranded. In the initial part of the interview, Aaron was telling us about his time at high school and studying philosophy at university. He then talked to us about how he, how he went from working as a political advisor to sharing the care of his newly born child and moving to Common Ground, an intentional community where a group of people come together to share their lives and resources in an agreed manner. Enjoy the rest of the interview with Aaron. ...community itself. So they built a venue, uh, an all-access venue outside Seymour, um, and the idea was to get uh, disadvantaged groups, disability groups, Aboriginal groups, activists of, of from the environmental movement, and uh, provide a venue for them and provide training um, and workshops in how to work well together. So uh, the, the founding members of that community um, are now sort of uh, getting to retirement age and are looking to hand over uh, the running of the property and of the business and the governance of, of the organisation to another generation and I've been uh, lucky enough to be involved in, in that transition. So there's still, I think, <clears throat> there's about 15 people who live there, including kids. Um, lots of community group activities there, I think. I saw some statistics that so far this year there's been 1,500 people days. Of, so, so that's one guest for one day is a people day. So it's still very busy. Um, it's a very dynamic and interesting place. At the moment, it does a lot of work with the local Tangerong community, who are the First Nations people for that part of Victoria. Um, it, there's a festival that runs there every two or three years. We've just decided to run another one in 2019, which is exciting. We have uh, the Asylum Seekers Welfare, Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, have regular uh, regular events there, and so yeah, it's 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 a great thing to be involved with that community. How does the community sustain itself? Do, do people, <coughs> members of the community, have outside jobs or is it all very much based on the community itself? Well, the, the, with the, the new governance model is uh, most of the people who run the organisation don't live there. They live in the city and they have, they have jobs um, and families in the city. Um, the people who do live there will often have uh, work in Melbourne and they'll, they'll work a few days a week. Um, I worked there as a, a research assistant. I, so I just sit on my laptop a couple of days a week and I was, I was working for Melbourne Uni at the time. Um, there, uh, one of the residents there works in, um, as a social worker and, and a, a family therapist locally in Seymour. So there are different, different ways of doing it. Um, but you don't pool your resources. It's not like a kibbutz. Right. So originally the, the founding members had a one purse, one roof, one table principle and they really did pool everything. All their income was, was pooled and uh, people were allocated money on the basis of what they needed and they earned money on the basis of what they could. Um, that's no longer the case. There's a kiddie system. It's a bit more like a share house as far as the, the um, domestic... Uh, economy goes but uh, in order to pay um, I suppose for people's board and their bills they work for the business which is the venue so there's a certain 
uh, there's certain hours a week that people are um, asked to work and they host groups and uh, maintain the venue. So that's how they pay their rent. So it's a relatively low cost way to live. So you don't have to work off the property very much. Mm-hmm. But you, yeah, you got to got to turn coins somewhere. Yep, yep. Sounds amazing. So Aaron, obviously you don't live there anymore, but you're still heavily involved. Yeah, that's right. Mm, great. Yeah. So um, you had moved there. You were looking after your daughter. Uh, you lived there for two and a half years. Uh, when did you start moving into the, I guess, the research world? Right. So as I mentioned, I, I got a part-time job uh, working as a research assistant while I lived there. Um, and I got a, a job working uh, as a researcher for Mission Australia. And uh, that was um, that required me to go to the city. And so I was spending more time there. And my partner was spending, was she had a public service job at the time. So we were doing a lot of commuting. And looking at the the housing market at the time, it was getting pretty frightening. And we thought if we can possibly find some uh, foothold in the city now, we you know if we don't do it now, we might not be able to do it in the future. And I think history has <laughs> shown that that was probably a wise decision. So yeah, after a couple of years, given our our interests, uh, our professional interests, we decided to move back to the city, and we bought a little house in Pasco Vale South. Uh, so, the research I was doing at the time was focused mostly on questions around homelessness. Uh, Mission Australia ran uh, various programs around the country working with uh, homeless people to try and um, help manage the immediate crisis and move them towards uh, sustainable housing. Um, I also did a bit of work in the economic development space, particularly around generating employment opportunities for young people. So I had the opportunity to work in Dandenong with some young people down there and some different social enterprises that uh, provided employment opportunities for young people. Ultimately, Mission Australia um, uh, was an opportunity for me to realise that there was a real, um, I suppose, a real glass ceiling for what you can do as a researcher without... Uh, without a PhD. You really need a PhD to be able to set your own research questions and I suppose operate at a higher level. Until you you do that, you kind of have to um, play second fiddle to a more senior researcher. I was going to ask you, Aaron, how did you land that job in the first place? Because you had worked, you know, you had a philosophy degree and you had worked in politics. How, I mean, obviously you're a very smart guy and, uh, but how... How did you land that job? Well, I suppose you'd have to ask the people at Mission Australia <laughs> why they hired me, but um, I got the impression, Jaime, that it had a lot to do with common ground, uh-huh. um, that having lived in that community and having learnt um, as much as I had uh, from, I suppose, the model that they had set out, that living together is difficult, especially living together with, you know, uh, a dozen other people. It takes a lot of communication skills it takes a lot of um, ability to reflect on what you bring to a situation and it takes an ability to listen and it also I suppose it demonstrates a certain amount of commitment to progressive social causes so all of those things I think counted in my favor when I applied for the job at Mission Australia. 
You're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM, and this morning our guest is Dr. Aaron Hart, who is a researcher, I would say an, an ethnographer, am I right, Aaron? Yeah? Uh, depending on the research task, I've certainly done that, yeah. At heart. <laughs> an ethnographer at heart, definitely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, we Aaron has brought with him a great selection of music, so we're quite excited to start playing that for you. And um, we're just going to go straight into that without even telling you anything. And Aaron can explain why he chose those tracks. So let's see if that works. Jeez, we were caught off guard here. Um, Aaron, can you back announce that track for us? Come on. Right, so that was called Pellets and Peas. It's by a band called The Long Johns, and they're from Brisbane. Um, I'd never heard of them, but I took my kids along to Moomba a few months ago, and uh, uh, they were playing with... Um, they're, I was particularly taken by their... They don't have a bass player, they have a sousaphone player. He's this tall, skinny guy with this improbably huge horn wrapped around his neck. <laughs> and uh, they were just ball-tearingly um, loud and brash and just heaps of fun. Um, I really like that sort of faux-gothic Americana uh, style. I've, I've dabbled in that sort of thing myself. And the the singer from the Long Johns has this... Uh, great energy about her she's got a really uh, formidable stage presence and she really belts out these these rocking numbers so i thought i thought those they were really fun i went home and i downloaded the album and i'm glad i did my kids and i have uh, listened to it on a few road trips yeah it's 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 good good stuff it's called last man standing if you want to look it up so aaron to understand you uh, i guess music is an important part of your life as well and you're a bit of a musician yourself Yeah, I am. I am. I've played with some different bands over the years. I've been a bass player first and foremost. So the Shivering Timbers is probably the band I played with most over the years. And we played a lot in the Inner North pub circuit, many nights at the Union Hotel and at the retreat. Um, we we made two albums and toured them around and had a, had a really good time of it uh, for a while there. And people's lives change and priorities uh, shift around and babies come along and, you know, things aren't as viable as they used to be. But that's it was a very a very enjoyable period of my life with the Shivering Timbers. Uh, and is music something that happens at Common Ground as well? Yeah, well, yes. So a lot of the... Um, a lot of the residents sort of dabble and uh, there's there's been many a... Um, a pass the guitar around the... Uh, around the, the open fire at night... Um, but uh, Common Ground also has a, a music festival, as I mentioned earlier, every every two or three years, and we're having another one in 2019. So we've had some great acts at that. Um, as a particular focus on um, Indigenous artists, on women artists, and on artists that uh, have some element of, of social consciousness or pursuing some kind of social change through their music or through their, their style. And sometimes we just book bands because we really like them, <laughs> uh, as well as all of that. So yeah, it's 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 a fun weekend. And uh, I I was quite happy to to read that uh, Gormol has uh, topped the charts with his posthumous al album. Right, I have I've heard a couple of tracks from that new album over the last few days on the radio, and I. My observation is that the orchestration is really bang on. It, um, it's such a difficult task to try and bring a western musical structure and and to try and compose uh parts for western instruments that 
enhance and bring life to uh, where Gurumul was coming from musically. They're really different universes of, mm. of, of musical traditions. And it's, it sounded like uh, there was a, a deep respect had been paid to uh, where Gurumul was coming from. But at the same time, it had been framed in uh, a, a Western sensibility that, uh, yeah, it, it's just a new hybrid way of thinking about things that I, I find quite exciting. You know, it really reminded me of uh, Nigel Westlake. The I think a couple of years ago, uh, he worked with a, with an artist. They, they put something together called Compassion. I don't know if you... But I think we'll we'll play it on the on the on the show soon. Anyway, but yeah, I completely agree with you. All right. So did you teach yourself bass, or did you have formal lessons? I had a couple of lessons, um, but no, I, I really just uh, um, I joined a punk band in Benalla <laughs> when I was sixteen, and none of us could play. What was the name? Come on. Um, we, we, look, we never played a gig, so we had a different name every week. But there was this lovely guy uh, in the main street of Benalla. He, he ran a music shop and he sold CDs and headphones. And, but down the back, he had musical instruments. His name was Ross Batson. And um, I and my friends used to hang out there because we we're really into music and we, we'd get him to play some of the new CDs that were coming in. We could never afford to buy any of this stuff, of course. And um, we took an instrument in the. Uh, sorry, we took an interest in in the instruments, and and none of us could afford to buy any of these instruments. But just handling them, and wow, this is exciting. Um, but he had us uh, come after hours, and he set us up out the back of the shop and set up some of his uh, cheaper secondhand sort of equipment, and uh, he would let us play there for hours, and we'd just make this god awful racket because none of us could play. Um, but we, yeah, we that. So I fell in love with it. Just the idea of of getting together on a weeknight with a group of friends and making a racket and trying to write some music and get something together to perform was just a really fun way to spend time. So I just kept doing that. I think bass players are very interesting characters because they always need other people to play with. You can't really do much with a bass on its own, can you? That's true. Yeah, that's true. You you definitely. Um, you definitely need to connect as a bass player and to serve. Like you're never really, never really the main act on the bass. But if you drop a note, or uh, you don't show up to a gig, or uh, things go really badly without the bass player. But once you're there and you're going, no one really takes any notice. So <laughs> it's very a bit character building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, Aaron. So we uh, we had in terms of your professional trajectory, we had left you sort of had Melbourne City Mission there, starting to realise that, uh, you know, there was a glass ceiling, as you put it yourself. So what what happened next? Yeah, so I worked uh, for a little while as um, an independent contractor and did a few bits and pieces, uh, evaluations and small-scale research jobs. Um, and I was working as... I thought I need to move more into the university field um, if I was going to ultimately get a PhD. And I worked as a sessional tutor uh, and lecturer at VU for a number of years, teaching research methods uh, to social work students. And that was, that was a really intense job for a few years there. But the way that work was set up, um, 
is really unsustainable. It seems like if you get paid as a lecturer, you, you know, you might get paid um, $80 an hour or something. And if without without a, a PhD, a professional sort of qualification like that, you think, wow, this is great money. Uh, I made it. <laughs> um, but you only, you only do that for a 12-week block. And then there's another 12-week block uh, later in the year. And then that's it. So you're employed for basically six months of the year. And the rest of the time, you have to make it work. So I did that for a few years and really enjoyed it. I, I do. In, there is a buzz to lecturing and to get, getting students excited and watching them get engaged. And you know, they often hate you because it's you're sort of challenging them. But then they they come around and so I enjoy the lecturing side of things. Uh, but I needed to find a more sustainable uh, employment model because that's just there's no way you can uh, raise a family or pay a mortgage as a sessional academic at least not without losing a lot of sleep about where you where you're getting your next job from so i took up a phd at the national drug research institute and uh, that was was funded to look at young young adults binge drinking uh, which has long been understood as as a as a public policy problem uh, from a health point of view, from a community safety point of view, and so on. Um, but I was lucky enough to have some very uh, free-thinking um, academics in that institute who encouraged me to think very broadly about the topic and uh, to take an approach to it that w- was a little more than just how can we convince young people that drinking is bad. So... Um what what did you do as part of your research? Well, I spent a year uh, wandering about Broadmeadows. Uh, that was the the uh, first thing I did, and that's where I met met you, Jaime. That's right. Uh, so the thought was that I would meet uh, some young adults, um, and I would uh, earn their trust, and I could observe some of their drinking practices, so that I could write about it in my PhD didn't quite happen like that but I observed lots of interesting things that uh, that did help me um, construct an argument which is ultimately what I what my what my job was and what I what I found was that there's a strong uh, association between alcohol consumption and low socioeconomic uh, backgrounds and contexts um, but it's not as simple as, as it seems uh, because low socioeconomic areas actually drink a good deal less than high socioeconomic areas, but they experience a lot more alcohol-related harm. So the idea that um, a certain number of, of standard drinks is dangerous or drinking more than a certain number of times a week is dangerous um, starts to fall apart when you situate it within within people's socioeconomic circumstances and what uh, what the harm is and where it comes from and how we think about that and how we respond to that changes uh, changes a lot if you figure in uh, socioeconomic disadvantage into the picture of alcohol related harm and it's no longer about telling people to drink less it becomes about providing people with more stable housing, providing people with better uh, transport options. Um, 
uh, it becomes about uh, gender identities and and the tendency for people to uh, police gender identities and and to victimize people who don't conform with the gender identities that they they feel comfortable with. It comes down to safety on the streets and uh, and comes down to opportunities to uh, to make a living and and to to have some kind of security. And if you drink in the absence of all of those things, uh, what what's going to happen is probably much worse for you and worse for those around you than if you drink in the, in the context of social and economic security. Aaron, um, we, before we said you are an ethnographer at heart, that that PhD was very much an ethnographic exercise. Um, and I I want our listeners to get a sense of what that means. What what you are you are actually doing? You know, like where where you spend your time for that year that you spend in Broadmeadows. So I I first spent and I I don't want to name specific no, that's right, yeah. locations because um, yeah. there there are ethical considerations around the use of data and anonymity and so on. Uh, but there was a little open air shopping mall where I spent the first. The first few months, and I would just go there uh, of a morning, and I'd spend all day there, and just watch what happened, and try and understand the the flows of of people and the different times of day, the the people who frequented there. I got to know um, a few of the people who hung out there, and I I learned about their lives, and they told me about the history of the local area and how it had changed, and uh, why. They chose to live there, um, and I, I tried to learn about people's drinking practices. But I, I learned that young people in this area uh, didn't do much drinking, so it became difficult for me to conduct my study. I was learning all this really interesting stuff around and Aaron, the when, history of Broad Meadows. When when someone ran into you um, and they said who the hell are you? And they wouldn't say, who the hell are you? They would say something different, perhaps. Um, what did you say? I'd say that um, I'm an academic student and I'm trying to learn about uh, young people's drinking. Um, there's, It's not ethical to tell people, to try and tell people anything other than what you're doing, that's but right, to that's use right. it as straightforward as you can. But hmm. it was often difficult for people to grasp There's this one fellow who spent... He, he was a pretty heavy drinker. Um, things weren't going great for him, but he, he was a great source of, of information and he was very well loved by the locals. And he used to introduce me as, um, this is Darren, he's writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> so I just went with that after a while. I was Darren writing a book. <laughs> All right, so come on, tell us a bit more about this. This is quite interesting. So after a few months there, I realized that the young people's drinking, uh, were, you know, I wasn't going to get onto it there. So I, I moved to a different, uh, a different part of town and I, I went to the Banksia uh, Gardens estate and I sought, some, I sought some help from the people there. Um, and I was uh, helped to become familiar with some of the, uh, the people who lived in, uh, in that neck of the woods and in, in that part of Broad Meadows and I I met a number of young people who uh, were very helpful and uh, were agreed to participate in interviews um, and uh, it was primarily from those interviews that I learned about their drinking experiences um, but I had to spend a lot of time in their space and, and in 
in that uh, part of town to earn the trust of not only these young people's these young people, but the people who worked with them, uh, and the people in their community who uh, who who knew them and looked looked after them. So I was uh, lucky to meet a couple of dozen of young people who were able to spend an hour or two talking to me in a, in an interview room and telling me some of their stories. And I learned a great deal about some of the issues that they faced while they were um, while they were trying to be young people and have a good time. So we're going to learn a little bit about what you learned um, in a minute. But before that, we're going to play them another one of your selections. So see if people like this one. Northwest FM will broadcast the Essendon District Football League match of the day every Saturday between 2 and 5:30 p.m. Tune in to 98.9 or listen to us online at northwestfm.org. We'll have half-time scores and full-time scores from the other EDFL games, plus interviews after the match with players and coaches. For more information, jump on our website, northwestfm.org. Hi there, Still Hip and Relevant is a music program focusing on alternative Australian rock from the 90s and noughties with some other styles of music as well like electronic and funk. You'll hear artists like Regurgitator, Snout, Front End Loader and Radiohead. There's also a couple of regular segments, namely Ukulele Song Chords and The Science Snippet. That's Still Hip and Relevant with me, Taz, on Thursdays 1pm to 2pm on 98.9 Northwest FM. Well, Matt Village, I don't know if we're hip and relevant, but we're here and we're here with Dr. Aaron Hart this morning. Aaron, uh, you have been doing most of the job for us this morning, so tell us about that track that we just played. So it's called The Melbourne Eye. It's by a, um, a Melbourne artist called uh, Charles Jenkins. He plays at the retreat pretty much every Monday night. He's a great singer-songwriter, I think. And... Uh, the Melbourne Eye was, was written at the time when the I think the Melbourne Star, you know, the big Ferris wheel, it was broken and it was just looming on the landscape as this giant folly. And I had warm feelings towards it as, as a giant folly. But uh, once it started to work, I suddenly, you know, I, I didn't feel so warmly towards it. Um, but Charles Jenkins managed to see the, the poetry of, of the Melbourne Eye and point to, I suppose, uh, um, uh, perhaps the poor taste of catching a Ferris wheel that lifts you high up in the air so that you can look over all the little people of the city. Uh, and, yeah, he's sort of ambivalent about the about the eye, whether he, he loves it or loathes it. Um, but, yeah, I think he has quite a poetic take on it and it's... It's this thing in our landscape that we have to make sense of, and, and I like I like it when singer songwriters help give us meaning. Great. So um, we were just talking about your PhD, and we talked a little bit about your methods and how you uh, spend quite a bit of time there on the streets um, and conducted some interviews with young people. So if you had to summarize your main lessons. In the you know in just a few minutes, what would you say? I'd say that um, some of the young people uh, in Broadmeadows face some really difficult uh, choices when they want to um, live like 
uh, I suppose, Anglo middle class uh, Australians who are from well-established families, and and they look to what what do these guys do? How do they how do they no- negotiate a transition to adulthood? Uh, part of that is is uh, is partying and and drinking, um, but in the context of scarce housing resources. So I, I spoke to a couple of young people who lived in quite large extended families who lived. Um, altogether in in public housing and uh, weren't able to have friends over to hang out with in the backyard um, so they had to and no one had had a space had a private space where they could drink so if and they they didn't have the money to um, to catch a, a train into the city uh, and drink in a in a bar there. So if they're going to do this without without those resources, they end up uh, in a park or on a corner, and uh, the chances of things going badly are much higher if you don't have uh, private space. Um, you're much more likely to be uh, to come to the attention of police. Um, and something else I observed was that. Uh, Young Muslims who drink face a particular complex set of circumstances because they don't want their family to know. On the one hand, they want to live like regular um, uh, other Australian young people that that they that they live amongst, and drinking is part of that. Uh, but if they if they're going to do this, they can't call up mum or dad at, at two a.m. and say, "Hey, I'm lost and broke. Can you come and get me?" which probably wouldn't be that big a deal for a lot of families. I'm sure there'd be some, there'd be a bit of a family sit-down on Sunday morning, but it, it wouldn't be a, a, a major family rift, most likely. But for um, young Muslim men and women who want, to, uh, who, who want to have a drink and who want to go out and party, they have to, uh, they have to negotiate that uh, in, without their family knowing, and that exposes them to more risk. So the the main point of of my PhD was to identify the various contexts that drove what we know as alcohol related harms and point to how housing systems and transport systems and I suppose class systems and and ethnic uh, ethnic groupings and and the different attitudes to alcohol all contribute to what we understand as alcohol related harms and pointing to ethanol as a chemical and saying this is what the problem is is in a way ignoring the fact that um, that class and and social stratification and disadvantage cause a lot of what we recognize as health harms and if we frame things as health harms we can sort of blame people we can say well you knew drinking was bad for you and you did it anyway so it's your fault or you knew smoking was bad for you Um, and we, we sort of attribute uh, we attribute health problems to individuals, but if we look at broader social systems, uh, we can see that the, the, the risks that people are exposed to um, aren't really of their choosing and that collectively we have a responsibility to provide people with the resources to, to, to lead good lives and not to blame them when they're exposed to risks or they become ill uh, because of the situation they're in, it's I'm not I'm not saying that personal responsibility isn't um, isn't real, uh, or or that we we ought not to reflect on the choices that we make. Uh, 
but it's it's very easy for public health uh, people to uh, finger individuals as being the source of, of blame for their exposure to risks and ill health. And I suppose my main argument was trying to push back against that individualizing. Aaron, am I, would I be right as well in saying that perhaps one of the things that you can conclude from your PhD is so young people drink pretty much everywhere. If you come from a mid-socioeconomic background, you can go pretty wild. Mm, and But if you do exactly the same things in a different background, likelihood is you'll end up in jail or you'll, you know, you'll have some trouble with the police or... That's right, or or you'll have a, a fallout with your family. But their behaviors are really not that different. That's right. I mean, I, I can think of my brother-in-law, uh, Giovanni, who, you know, sometimes you, you watch a video of w- what they are up to on, on Facebook and you think, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, arguably, there are also things that I, I must have done when I was that young. But, yeah, but then if you do it in a certain context, public space, police are watching... Uh, it's a it's a completely different matter, and also less people to sort of um, pick up the pieces later on. No, that's right. Fewer fewer resources. Um, you know, if if you pick up your phone and scroll through the people and think, who could I call if I was in a pickle at two a.m. on a Sunday morning? Um, it's likely that some of the young people in Broadmeadows I spoke to would have uh, many fewer people that they could call who'd be in a position to come and to come and help them out, and th- that ends up making a real difference. Now, um, I can't help myself to ask you, a, I guess, a wider question about about drugs in general. And uh, you, you have been looking at drugs for quite a long time in, in your career. Um, what is your sense of what solutions look like in terms of going forward as a society? And, uh, you know, this is a big question. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I, I could only sort of present... Um my personal views here and anyone I might have worked for or written with um, may or may not endorse these views. Sure. That's what we're after, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I would say that um, the idea of prohibiting drugs um, drives a lot of the harm. It changes the effect of drugs because if you consider drug effects as emerging from the context in which they're consumed rather than as emerging from particular chemical properties of the drugs. If you take a broader view of drug effects, like I was saying with alcohol, um, when you criminalise and prohibit drugs, you create certain circumstances around their consumption. And uh, those circumstances can can lead to much greater harms than if if the same substances are taken in the context of... uh, more things being more overt and explicit and, and harm minimization strategies being much more upfront. And a great example is young people waiting in line to get into a festival and a sniffer dog is walking along the line checking everyone's pockets and someone's got a pill in their pocket and they think, oh, crap, the sniffer dog's coming. I'll just pop it in my mouth. Um, so they haven't sort of thought about that. They haven't calibrated that they might have already taken some drugs that's a much more risky situation than if the young person was able to choose the timing of that um, if they were able to make sure they had appropriate supports around at the time when they took those drugs Um, I think that there are many instances where 
prohibition and criminalization makes the problem worse. It's very clear that uh, prohibiting drugs does little or nothing to prevent their consumption. It just changes the context. I was, uh, I was just going to say that, Aaron, that in, I don't know, 11 years working in Barbados, I have never come across anyone who has said to me, you know, today I was looking for drugs, but the police are doing such a good job that I couldn't find them. <laughs> so then, I mean, that begs the question. And, and I guess the difference, you know, there's a difference between that and, for example, trying to sell alcohol to a minor, which is quite difficult. You know, you go to the shop and they check your ID and then, and, and I'm, I'm sure there are ways around that anyway. However, uh, the reality is quite, of, quite a few of the drug dealers that I know, they certainly never ask their clients how old they are so no and and i think at that point of of transaction you know if you were just for argument's sake you were you were uh, buying your recreational drugs from a chemist or from someone who was you know uh i suppose had more professional interest in the in the quality and the chemical properties of those drugs you could expect a very different at least a very different set of harms to emerge um, the ha- the harms from uh, impure, adulterated drugs um, are, in lots of ways, worse than the impu- the, ha- the harms of the impurities are worse than the harms of, of the chemicals that people are actually seeking. So if you somehow give people the power to, uh, to choose drugs that are closer chemically to what they actually want to take, uh, you've you've reduced you've reduced at least some of the harms. You've changed you've changed the harms at least. Well, Carol, what what are your views on this? I'm interested to ask Aaron, and probably even bigger and more difficult question. Given you've worked for politicians, how do you change the politics of drug regulation? Because recently we had a political leader calling for legalisation of mm. marijuana. And the response from the major po- other major political leaders was horror. No, we would never consider that because they're concerned about public backlash. Mm. How do you change the public debate to make what you're suggesting possible to explore in reality? Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really good a really good question, a really difficult question to answer. I think that there are international examples where. Uh, the public opinion has changed because the situation has been self-evidently so so bad for so many people for so long that there, there is you can't help but acknowledge uh, that a change is needed, and I think that was probably the case in Portugal. I think that the kind of drug issues that we face here are less probably less pressing, and as a result, um, more there's more inertia. So in a way, if there was a some kind of sudden crisis or things were to escalate for the worse, that would that might create a tipping point. But as for strategies to to change it, I think that there's a generational shift underway, and I, I think that the idea that taking drugs is somehow immoral, transgressive, um, inherently dangerous and stupid is something that fewer and fewer people, uh, a view that fewer and fewer people hold. And I think that music and art and literature, um, as people become more educated on average and they're exposed to a a wider range of ideas, they realise that uh, drug use has 
shaped human culture um, throughout time and will continue to do so. And I think that if you stop and consider drugs as part of the human experience and part of human culture, um, the idea that they're, they're, they're immoral or, or bad or, or, or dangerous um, stops making quite so much sense. And I, I think that there's probably a slow generational shift underway that maybe started with the baby boomers and who knows how long it will take to, to filter through. But I can't help but feel optimistic that at some point um, the weight will shift. Aaron, we're very quickly running out of time. However, um, I do want to ask you a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what happened after your PhD and what sort of work you have been doing since then. So my next job was around um, uh, st- steroid injecting among men. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was uh, involved with, I, I was interviewing um, a number of men who injected steroids and learning about those practices and, and why. Uh, I was particularly interested in their uh, uh, safe injecting practices because any sort of injecting drug use carries risk of bloodborne virus transmission. And and Aaron, so is this uh, were these people who were doing bodybuilding? Yeah, yeah, uh, men? yeah. Primarily, there was one guy who used it for, um, I suppose, psychological reasons. He felt that it gave him more confidence. He felt that he lacked social confidence, and that having more testosterone um, worked for him in that respect. But most people were using it to put on muscle and reduce fat. Okay. Um, yeah, I found that really interesting, particularly around. Uh, the way that people, the, the way that the literature has framed that as a problem, uh, this idea of hypermasculinity, that people are sort of trying to be more manly by taking testosterone. And I thought that, that ultimately that didn't sound right to me. Uh, with Looking uh, at, at the men I was talking to and thinking about what they, what they said, I think that they're they were trying what they were trying to achieve was gendered it w- it was had something to do with masculinity but it wasn't just like a more enha- a more enhanced version of a standard ma- kind of masculinity it's, it's it's a different kind of masculinity that they're pursuing than a traditional anglo-australian masculinity um i think masculinity is is many things to many people and uh, steroid using masculinity is one version of that I think it's simplistic to say that people are hyper-masculine and that they somehow need uh, psychological therapy or something to come to terms with their masculinity, which is what a lot of the, the literature seems to be saying. I think if we take a broader view of what they're trying to achieve and say, in this day and age, there are very powerful social forces that make people want to look muscular. I heard people say that they might show up to a job site uh, in the morning, and, and the most muscly guys will be picked for work and everyone else will be sent home. There are sometimes very good reasons for, for men to want to be muscly and to say that they're crazy or sick for, for wanting to do so is, is I think, to, to disrespect them and to miss the point, uh, which is not to say that taking steroids can't be really, really dangerous. It, it can. There's some strong statistics around, particularly around heart health. Uh, from looking at you, I can see that you didn't take up the practice. That's uh, you. You guessed right. There, <laughs> I've, no one's ever mistaken me for um, 
for or for yeah being a steroid user or for being hyper masculine for that matter. <laughs> All right, we're going to play uh, uh, another music track and we'll come back pretty much quickly just to say goodbye. You can hear us live on 98.9 Northwest FM and streaming online at www.northwestfm.org, northwestfm.org for more information. I work in a factory. There's a bit of heavy lifting involved, and it's never caused me any problems. That's why it was such a shock when I hurt my back. I mean, I was only moving a small box of tools at the time. One in three injuries to Australian workers are caused by manual handling with inexperienced workers at greatest risk. A person can be injured when manipulating objects in a variety of ways, including pulling, pushing, holding or restraining. Good posture and lifting techniques can help reduce the risks, but research indicates that making changes to workplace design is the most effective way to prevent manual handling injury. So try to identify factors in the workplace that may increase the risk of an injury occurring. Walk through the workplace and look for potential hazards and talk over risk factors with workers. Check through injury records to help pinpoint recurring problems and regularly monitor and update risk identification. This program is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health and Ageing. All right, then you're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. And uh, this morning we have been talking to Dr. Aaron Hart, uh, who is a researcher and just a very interesting fellow all around. Um, Aaron, what did we just hear? So that's a song by... Uh, singer-songwriter Mandy Connell, who plays around a lot. Um, all of the songs I chose this morning are by local artists that you can probably, if you go and see them, you're likely to see this song. So Mandy Connell lives mostly in Wangaratta, but comes down and plays uh, gigs in Melbourne from time to time. And that's a song called The Garden, and it's about having been on the road for a while and the pleasures of coming home, even to a very humble home. In her case, it was a... She says... My shed in Brunswick has no view. So, but she was very much looking forward to coming home. That's what that song was about. I like it. Beautiful. Uh, I think you've done a great job this morning with the music selection. Now we're quickly running out of time. In fact, we have run out of time. But uh, Aaron, just wanted to ask you about what you are doing now. So I'm working uh, on a, a research project uh, looking at um, older workers in the aged care sector and the question is around how uh, can work change to enable people to stay healthier for longer. There's a, a government policy uh, around increasing the retirement age and there's a, a recognition that the population is ageing and that economically um, it's uh, a good idea to have people work for longer. My concern with all of this, of course, is that the the age to access superannuation hasn't increased, um, and there are a lot of uh, a lot of people who have a lot of discretion over how they spend the uh, the last two or three decades of their life. But if you're an older worker on a lower income and you don't have uh, a great superannuation account, particularly if you're a woman, which is much more often uh, they, they have lower superannuation accounts because they've had broken work histories and so on. So some of the politics around getting people to work longer, trying to restrict access to the pension, can be quite regressive and can end up uh, mm. can end up impacting the least well off uh, the most. 
Um, so I suppose trying to come up with some ways to, to uh, moderate some of those influences and tell some other stories. Aaron, you know, this uh, is great in some ways because it's going to mean that you're going to have to come back to talk to us about it. Um, it's been so interesting to talk to you this morning and we really want to thank you for your time. Thanks very much, Jaime. Thanks, Carol. Thank so you. let us know what uh, we're going to leave our guests with. Oh, it's uh, oh yes, two things, yeah. So uh, there's something I just wanted to mention while I was here. Is I uh, spoke about the community common ground uh, that I'm involved with a little uh, earlier in the interview, and there's um, a, an event coming up at common, Gra- common ground called Reset, and uh, it's from Friday the 18th to Sunday the 20th of May. And uh, it's going to be a workshop that uh, gives people the opportunity to learn about Common Ground, to learn about some of the, uh, I suppose, the interpersonal technologies that have been developed in the course of living in intentional community for decades. And uh, spending some time in the garden, uh, spending some time with some of the uh, the Tangarong mob, who uh, are the, the First Nations people up that way. Um, it's going to be a great event. It's a fundraiser for Common Ground. So if you're, if that sounds of interest to you and you're free from the Friday the 18th to Sunday the 20th of May, go to common-ground.org.au and uh, get along to the Reset event. So thanks for giving me the chance to make a plug. No, that's fantastic. Uh, so Aaron, what are we going to play for our listeners to leave them with? Well, I thought that uh, the last one was uh, I Had to Make It by Ross McLennan. Uh, so he released this album late last year. The album's called All the Colours Print Can Manage and it is just a most incredible uh, piece of, of art. And uh, I've been listening to it obsessively. So this is track one. It's called uh, Selling Good, Good News. Um, I'll let you... Uh, sort of enjoy the I'll let you enjoy the the song uh, without telling you too much about it but um, it's about an experience that probably many of us have had at some point and uh, he's taken the trouble to write about it and reflect on it in quite a dazzling musical way all right well let's play it if we can and thank track you all very much we'll track s- one. Oh, track one yeah we'll see you all next week <laughs>